Lessons in Tanya. The Tanya of Rabbi Schneir Zalman of Liadi. Taught by Rabbi Ben-Zion Krasniansky. Tanya's text elucidated by Rabbi Yosef Weinberg. Page 478. So we discussed that why is life set up in such a way that all of our energies are poured out in engaging our body, our egos, our material side, which has no interest in spirituality and godliness. You know, if the emphasis of Torah and mitzvot were on the soul, that the soul should meditate and become spiritual and reach higher levels of consciousness and the soul should dominate and prevail over the body and the conflict and struggle between the body and soul. The soul prevails. Okay, that would make sense to us. But as a matter of fact, the emphasis of all 613 mitzvot are on the material. You must engage the body. It's the physical. It's not the soul. It's not the spiritual. You can't suffice with the emotions or with the philosophy of Judaism or the spirituality of Judaism. The ultimate, the bottom line is the action, the deed. You must engage your body, your hands and your legs and your physical. You have to light the Shabbat candle. You have to physically take the match and light the candle. You have to physically take the tefillin and put it on your arm. You have to physically put your hand in your pocket, take your hard-earned money and give it to tzedakah. It's all the physical. Even those mitzvot that are spiritual, the emotional mitzvot, like the mitzvot to love your God, also involves and engages the body, the, the physical heart. When do you fulfill the mitzvah? Only when you physically feel that love in your heart. If it's an abstract type of love, you haven't fulfilled the mitzvah. The mitzvah is to love, that it should be physical. You should actually physically feel, feel the love to Hashem. It should physically affect you and change. Just like when your best friend suddenly appears and walks into the room, you physically feel a difference. You feel a load off your chest. Even if you're walking around in a bad mood, suddenly if your best friend, you bump into your best friend, you will physically feel the difference. Like something shifts inside of you and you feel lighter and you feel <laughs> optimistic and you feel holistic and you feel wholesome and you feel ready to take on the world. It's a physical ex- feeling. So too, when do you fulfill the mitzvah of loving Hashem, loving God? It's only when it, you reach a point that you physically feel it in your heart. You feel a thrill and excitement in your heart. You feel the closeness of Hashem and the love that you have phys- uplifts you, inspires you, gives you the energy and gives you the strength. So even the spiritual mitzvot, the meditative mitzvot, also have to affect the material and the physical. And the question is, why? Why this energy, why exert all this energy on the material, on the dense material, egotistical self, soul, the animal soul, when the animal soul is not transformed by it? You can go through your entire life studying Torah and doing mitzvot and leading a disciplined life and doing all the right things, and there's no transformation. There's no core transformation of your animal ego self. The rest of your life, till the last breath, you'll still be tempted and tested and, and attracted to materialism. So the question is, why pour all this energy? Why focus all this attention on the material? And the deed, and the action, and the physical? And Al Rebbe explains, because this is the whole purpose of creation. The whole purpose of creation, the reason why God created the world is because 
as the Midrash says, that God desired to have a dwelling place for himself in this world, in the lowest of all the worlds. What do you mean in the lowest of all the worlds? God transcends time and space. There's no higher, there's no lower. To God, there's no difference between the high and the low. It's all the same to him. Past, present, future, high, top, bottom, it's all the same. So what do you mean the lowest of all the worlds? In what sense, does it, in, what sense in reference to God is there such a thing as high and low? And he explains, he means to say that the lowest of all the worlds in the sense that all the other worlds, all the higher worlds, are a reflection of God. Like a ray of the sun that reflects the sun, connects you to the sun, points to the sun. All the upper realms, all the spiritual realms, the world of energy and spirituality, point towards a source, a divine source. You have a higher world, you have lower worlds, but all of them share one thing in common. They're all like an energy that's connected to its source. The only exception is this dense, coarse, human, materialistic world. It's a world which is completely cut off, completely disconnected from its source. Not only doesn't it point a finger to its source, but the world is full of kalipa, a shell that covers up and actually conceals, actively conceals and hides. And the fact that there is a source. We live in a very coarse, egotistical, harsh, coarse, egotistical, materialistic world. That's the antithesis of godliness and spirituality. And a world that points to itself it's an en- as an end in itself. We don't come from anywhere. We're not going anywhere. There's no point. There's no Just live in the moment. Live for the moment. And that's all that matters. There's no history. There's no destiny. There's no care. There's no concern. There's no connection to the past. There's no connection to the future. All there is is, is the now. Enjoy. And that's it. Nothing else matters. Such a dark world. Such a spiritually oppressively dark world. That's the antithesis of spirituality, of energy, of godliness, of goodness, of kindness, of genuineness, of authenticity. Why would God create such a world? And not only did God create this world, this is the ultimate purpose of creation. Ultimate purpose not only of creation of the material, the ultimate purpose of creation of all the spiritual realms. The only reason God created the entire world is because God wanted us to transform this darkness and transform it into light. And when you take this coarse material, dense materialistic world, and you transform it into something godly, it's a novelty. You're creating something, something new. You're revealing God's essence, and you're revealing the infinite light, and you're revealing it in a way where it's completely uncovered and completely revealed. Like in a home, when a person is at home, when a person is in their home, you feel comfortable. You're at home, you feel comfortable, you take off your clothes, you get naked in every sense of the word. But you feel at home, you let your hair down, you're no longer role-playing, you're no longer acting, you just you are yourself. You're completely yourself. That's the idea of you feel at home. When you leave your house, you're projecting a certain <laughs> image. You get dressed up a certain way, you're projecting an image. You can role-play, there are many, many different uh, images that you can project. But at home, that's where you feel at home. So too, in the higher realms, God is projecting himself. In the spiritual realms, in the divine realms, God is projecting himself. It's just a, a glimmer of a ray of, of who God is. It's not God's essence. Only in this world is God's essence fully revealed and fully manifest. And he's revealed without any cover. How? Through transforming the material into the spirit, by taking the material by doing the mitzvot with the lowest of our abilities, with the action, the deed, the physical, the body, 
and doing the mitzvot, engaging the body, engaging the animal soul, engaging the ego, and transforming it into something spiritual and godly, you are revealing, you're drawing down the essence of God into this one. Something new, something novel. And this is the ultimate purpose of creation. This is what gives God tremendous pleasure and delight. And that's the whole purpose of all of the higher realms, of the spiritual realms. All were created for this purpose. And he says, when will this purpose fully be realized? We realize with the coming of Mashiach. Mashiach will come. That is the whole purpose of creation. It's not that Mashiach is a reward. Merely a reward, something external. Right now we're doing the work and Mashiach will come. Hashem will reward us for doing wonderful work and will give us Mashiach. No, Mashiach is the ultimate purpose of creation. Everything we're doing now is just a preparation to prepare us for the way the world is intended to be. Mashiach will come, then the world will be as it was intended to be. The world will reach its, its, its purpose, its fruition, which is then godliness will be revealed in this material world. This coarse, dense world as we know it will reveal, godliness will be fully revealed in this world. This world will be a home, a dwelling place for God. God, will say, God says, I will feel at home in this world. And especially during the resurrection. And he says that the main, the main reward will be the seventh millennium, which comes after the Messianic era and after the, after the, re, the resurrection. But it's during the, the, the Messianic era and even during the resurrection, that's when we'll fulfill the mitzvot and its completion in its entirety. That's when God's purpose for creation, God's vision for creation, God's whole purpose for creation, the reason he created the whole universe, both heaven and earth, spiritual and material, was all for that moment. Which is why Mashiach is so central to Judaism, because that's the whole purpose. It's for that moment that the whole world was created. That is the whole purpose of creation. And that's why right in the beginning of creation, we just read last week, the Shabbat, we started reading the Torah again. 3,421st time. We're reading the Torah over again. And we read right at the beginning that God said there should be light. Because that's the purpose of creation. This is the mission statement of creation. What's the purpose of creation? There should be light. And then the Torah says, well, God created the desolate world. The world was desolate. Because that is the whole purpose. We should take, enter, engage into this desolate world, this spiritually dark world. And then we transform the darkness into light. And the Midrash says, which light? The light, the Ruach Alakim, the spirit hovered <laughs> over the water, the dark water. That refers to the spirit of Mashiach. Because that's the purpose, that's the goal, that's the theme, that's what it's all about. Everything that happens in the world is leading us. And everything that happens in our personal lives is leading us to that moment. The moment of redemption. That, that moment in time when there will be this transformation, when this material world will be transformed. And this world will become a godly place. Imagine you walk down Park Avenue and you'll feel godliness. It'll be tangible. Right now, you walk down Park Avenue, you feel dollar bills, you feel other things. Not the in God we trust of the dollar bill but Mashiach will come you'll walk down Park Avenue you'll sense godliness it'll be palpable it'll be tangible you'll feel it you'll sense it it'll be in the ear 
And now he's going to explain that although this will take place in the future, but nevertheless, we've already had a taste of it in the past. And that is Mount Sinai. Because there is nothing new. There'll never be, there'll never be another Torah. There'll never be another Mount Sinai. Even Mashiach will come. There'll never be another Mount Sinai. Mashiach will implement the Torah. This vision that Hashem had and that He revealed to us at Mount Sinai, that vision was never fully realized. That vision will be realized and implemented through Mashiach. But there'll never be another Mount Sinai. Therefore, everything of the future has to be contained in Mount Sinai, in the giving of the Torah. But it could have been contained in, in potential form, and Mashiach will come, then it will be actualized. So even this revelation, this revelation, that will take place when Mashiach will come, this revelation will actually, we actually experiment it, we actually add a taste of it, with at Mount Sinai. And the truth is, the Medr says, that even dates back. It says, when God created the world, <coughs> this world was actually a dwelling place for God. God was at home in this world. This was God's garden. It was a garden of Eden. Not only a garden of Eden for man, it was a garden of Eden for God as well. It was a garden. A luxurious place. A place of tremendous delight, tremendous pleasure. So God had tremendous pleasure of the world. The world was perfect. When God created the world, the world was perfect. It was beautiful. It was a garden of Eden. Perfection itself. Adam was perfect. The world was perfect. Everything was an equal balance. All the hidden secrets of the world were fully revealed. This world was literally a paradise. Literally, physically a paradise. Because it was also a spiritual paradise. It was a complete paradise. How long did it last? Not long. Three hours. <laughs> Three hours. A few moments. Brief moments. It's like all of us, right? We all start out as children. We all start out pure and innocent. And then we grow up. What happens to that, that innocence? What happened to us? Once we were so pure and innocent and wholesome and delicious. You know, they say young children are so delicious, you want to eat them up alive. When they grow older, you wonder why you didn't. <laughs> <laughs> what happened to that pure innocence? We become obnoxious. We become arrogant. We become stuffy. and We become impossible insufferable. What happened to that pure, innocent little child? We grow up. We lose our innocence. And we are expelled from the Garden of Eden very quickly. But it's important for us to know that we start out in the Garden of Eden. Because it tells us that that's our core, that's our essence. Our essence we have, we retain, we always retain that innocence, that purity. It's there, it's our core, it's our essence. What comes later is, is is it just a cover, is a shell. It's just a cover-up. It's not our true essence. Our true nature, our true essence is that childlike innocence. That's who we really are. But then we're alienated from ourselves. We're exiled from our true selves. So we're, we're expelled from our true nature, our inner nature. So the nature of this world is really godly. 
the essence of this world is really godly. The core the essence of this world is a Garden of Eden, even today. It's just the cover-up that we, that doesn't appear to be a Garden of Eden. It appears to be, thank you, it appears to be very harsh. And the antithesis of everything that's godly and good, full of deceit and lies, the antithesis of truth. Children are so truthful. Children are like lie detectors. Get an adult who hates children to hold a baby. They can smile to the baby. The baby will start yelling. You can't, you can't, you can't lie to children. They're, they're lie detectors. They can sense in a second that this person this, hates children. <laughs> they can smile from today till tomorrow. While if they meet a person who genuinely loves children, they'll just melt in their arms. Children are, are genuine. And we all started out that way. We're genuine. That's our core. That's our essence. And then we entered into the adult world of deceit, self-deception, alienation. And the more arrogant we become, the older we become, the more we eat, and the more alienated we become from our true self. Unless we recapture that childlike innocence. We go back to the Garden of Eden. We get in touch with our soul, with that, with that childlike innocence. Not childish, with that childlike innocence. And the Medrash says that for seven generations, for seven generations from Adam, and then till Sodom and Gomorrah, each passing generation they became more further alienated from the Garden of Eden, further distanced from the Garden of Eden. The ultimate sin was Adam's sin. She was expelled as a result, as a consequence, him and Chava were expelled from the Garden of Eden. And then you had the generation that started worshipping idols, and then you had the generation where they rebelled against God, and the generation of the flood, and the Tower of Babel, and Sodom and Gomorrah. So you had like seven descents where the heavenly presence became, started ascending and became so remote till it reached the seventh heaven. It was, became so remote from this world, so unrelated to the world. The world became awash in paganism, in cruelty, and the whole world forgot about God, forgot about godliness, forgot about the truth. And then, beginning with Abraham, the very first Jew, Abraham started the healing process. Abraham brought God down from the seventh heaven to the sixth heaven. And Isaac brought God down a little closer to earth from the sixth heaven to the fifth heaven. And Jacob brought God down a little closer to earth from the, from the uh, fifth heaven to the fourth heaven. And then uh, Levi, who was the spiritual one, he was the one in charge of, entrusted with the teachings of the patriarchs and the matriarchs. So he brought God down a little closer from the fourth to the third. And then, and then uh, Kahas, third to the second. Amram brought it down from the second to the first. And Moses, the seventh leader, all seven are beloved. He was the one who brought God back down to earth. That's what happened at Sinai. At Sinai, he healed, he mended the original sin of the, the sin of, the, of, the, of Adam and Chava. He brought God down. They caused God to be expelled from this world. And instead of a Garden of Eden, this world became a harsh place. He mended that sin, and he brought God back down into this world. And at Mount Sinai, for a brief moment, once again, this world became a Garden of Eden. Had the Jewish people not sinned with a golden calf, when Moses would have come down the mountain with the tablets, they would have gone straight into Israel, and they would have ushered in the Messianic era for the entire world. There was no death at the time. All the ill people were cured at Mount Sinai. All that were blind were able to see. Everyone was cured. Everyone was perfect once again, not just spiritually, but also physically. It manifested itself physically. The world became a Garden of Eden. And they were in the Garden of Eden, in the, at, at the, at, in the desert, at Mount Sinai, surrounded by the clouds and 
receiving from the manna from heaven and drinking from the water from the, from the stone. So they recreate, they have a Garden of Eden. And had they not sinned, that would have remained permanent. And what happened? And as a result of the sin, we reverted back to the world became once again a harsh place. We reintroduced the uh, angel of death and we once again, in a certain sense, we were banished. And that's why the sin of the golden calf is the ultimate sin. We're still suffering from that sin because it once again degraded the world and brought the world down back and the world once again became a coarse place, place <coughs> that conceals and hides its inner godly nature, its inner godly truth. And it's up to us to reveal, through Torah and Mitzvah, to reveal that the world is really essentially a Garden of Eden, a pleasurable place, a gentle place, a genteel place, a kind place, <coughs> a good place, a genuine place, an authentic place, a spiritual place, a selfless place. It's up to us to reveal that this world is a Garden of Eden. So Mashiach will come, then the world will permanently become a Garden then God's presence will return back into this world and God's presence will be fully revealed in this world and God will permanently move back into this world. And this world will become a home. And God will move and live with the Jewish people in eternal bliss in the land of Israel and in the temple, the third temple, and the whole entire world will become a dwelling place for God. God will look at this world and say, it's wonderful, I love this world, it's beautiful, it gives me so much pleasure, it's my garden of Eden, it gives me delight. It takes delight and pleasure in this world. But right now, there is the Rabba God is here. I mean, this is God's dwelling place. No, we have to make, we have, it's not. We're making it through Torah and Mitzvah. But uh, God is not revealed. As long as not God is not revealed, then it's not a dirabat achtonim. In your home, you're not hidden. In your home, you're revealed. God right now is hidden. So Mashiach hasn't he's come everywhere. yet. Mashiach hasn't come yet. In your home, you're revealed. You're not hidden. Of course, he's everywhere, but he's hidden. He's concealed. He's in exile. He doesn't even have a home. God is homeless. His temple is destroyed. We have homes. Some of us have two homes. Some have three homes. God doesn't even have a single home. So to say that this is Dira B'tachtoinim, God forbid. This is not Dira B'tachtoinim. We're making the Dira B'tachtoinim, but Mashiach hasn't come yet. Until Mashiach comes, it's not, and God is not revealed, and God is in exile, and God is in pain, he's in anguish, and he's homeless. He's suffering. This is not what he wanted. He didn't want suffering. He wanted pleasure. He didn't want people dying, and illness, and suffering, and, and, and uh, people being out of touch with themselves. This is not, this is people sleepwalking through life. Right now, it's, it's exile. It's a very harsh exile. It's a very bitter and dark exile. God forbid to confuse exile with, 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 with the way things should be. We shouldn't look at exile and say it's wonderful. God is here and it's wonderful. No. God is hidden. It's not the way He wants it to be. He made a darkness. This is part of the darkness that God created. He wants us to take this darkness and to transform it into light. It hasn't happened yet. The darkness has not been transformed to light. Maybe it has for you, but it hasn't for the rest of us. The darkness has not been transformed into light. There's darkness. And the darkness is darkness. And the temple is destroyed. And Jews are in exile. And the whole world is in exile. So to say that this is Dira B'Tachtoinim, God forbid. We haven't reached there yet. This is not. This is Tachtoinim. We're up to the Tachtoinim, the lowest. The darkness, thick darkness. It's up to us to take this darkness and transform it into light. 
But when we start confusing darkness with light and we're happy with the darkness, is achem vey to all of us. Oh, woe is to all of us. This is darkness is darkness and light is light. Let's not confuse darkness with light. Darkness is not the point. The point is not that it should be darkness. The point is we should take the darkness and change the darkness. Transform the darkness into light. When the darkness starts lighting, when the darkness is, becomes light, has the darkness been light? As of this moment, has the darkness turned into light? God forbid, who can say the darkness has turned to light? This is light. This is light that we're sitting in exile on the Upper East Side of Manhattan instead of the Upper East Side of Jerusalem when there's no temple. When God is in exile, Moses is stuck in the desert. Jewish history is stuck in the desert. Every Jewish soul that ever lived is stuck in the desert. Six billion people in the world are in an exile, spiritual exile, and there's so much suffering and pain. How can we, let's not confuse darkness with light. This is not what God wants. God wants us to change the world. And that change hasn't happened yet. It's imminent. It's any moment. But it hasn't happened yet. And, and we, we, we have to be restless until it happens. We can't accept the darkness and say it's wonderful. No, it's not acceptable. We have to change the darkness. That's our mission. And we have to, we have to, we have, to have a sense of urgency about it. If we think that God is everywhere and it's wonderful, oh, it's beautiful. So then what's the urgency? It's wonderful. God is everywhere. What do I need Mashiach for? It's beautiful. God is already here. It's wonderful. That's not the way a Jew thinks. It's not wonderful. We don't understand the darkness. The darkness, the suffering, it's inexplicable. And we can't make peace with it. And it's not wonderful. And we don't like it and we don't want it. And God wants us to pray sincerely and wholeheartedly. Please, get me out of here. Bring Mashiach. Change the darkness. We want the darkness to be transformed into light. You have to be very careful. There's a story with the uh, Baal Shem Tov. His, son, his brother-in-law would travel to Israel. Baal Shem Tov told him, um, or his, his, I think it was his brother-in-law, his brother-in-law, Rabbi Gershon Kittever, or, or one of his <laughs> biggest students, uh, Rabbi Wolf Kitzis. And he told him, be very careful what you say. Extremely careful what you say. Fine. Travel to Israel. And on the way, he got stranded on some island. And he's shocked. He sees a beautiful synagogue in the island. And he walks in. He sees the most dignified Jews in Israel. He's never seen such dignified rabbis in the middle of an island, some middle of, middle of nowhere, between Russia and Israel, anyway, in Ukraine and Israel. And he goes in and and uh, the, the, the leader of the group, the most dignified rabbi, comes over to him and says, where are you from? He says, I'm from Eastern Europe. So tell me, how are Jews doing in Eastern Europe? He says, thank God. God never abandons us. And then the whole vision disappeared. <laughs> All the people also think I disappeared. And later on, he came back to Ukraine. The Vashem told you, didn't I warn you you should be careful what you said? You know who these people were? They were Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Moses and Aaron. And they came because they're, they're storming heaven. They're storming, they're pushing, they're praying, they're complaining, they're arguing with God. He must bring Mashiach. So God says, why, why the urgency? The Jews are very happy in Eastern Europe. Why don't you ask the Balshemta, one of the senior students of the Balshemta, this great rabbi, ask him how things are going. So had you said it's unbearable, we need Mashiach now, Mashiach would have come. Instead you say, no, God is everywhere, God is beautiful, everything is wonderful. And that's it. So because of that we had a holocaust, and because of that 200 years later we're still sitting in exile. 
A Jew has to be careful. He can't confuse. He can't confuse darkness with light. You have to know that darkness is darkness, and it's not acceptable. We don't understand the darkness, and we're not trying. Of course, God is everywhere. But also, you, there is another notion that God is good, and and whatever is going on right now, He knows what's best. So absolutely, so absolutely. But that's that's God faith. And, that's and absolutely. That's the, you know, that's what it is. That's so, faith. That's absolute faith. But. But God wants us, there's also another one, God wants us to pray for Mashiach. Right. Because it makes no sense to us. There's faith and there's a logic. We have, a Jew has complete faith that God is good and everything that God does is good. But then there's logic. God created us human. There's a message in that too. God didn't just create us with faith. He created us with a mind, with a brain. And He created us to be human. And the fact that on the human level, pain and suffering make absolutely no sense. On the human level, this harsh exile. And the fact that the exile is still continuing, 5769, in the world's in the worst nightmare. There isn't a single rabbi in the history who could have believed, and so late in Jewish history, we'd still be sitting in exile. So the fact that logically it's completely inexplicable, is, there's a message, a divine message in that too. God created us that way too. Because He wants us to yell and shout and scream and pray and storm heaven and earth and say we can't stand another moment of exile. Get us out of here. This is urgent. We, have to, we need Mashiach now. This moment. Because to spend another night in exile is simply unbearable. The status quo should continue and continue and continue. Maybe God is shaking up the whole world because enough is enough already. It's time to, to wake up. It's time to move. We have to move to the next stage already. We're stagnating. We can't, the status quo just can't continue. We just can't continue as, and, and coasting along as if everything is normal. It's not normal. It's abnormal and it's unacceptable. And we have to do something about it. We have to pray. So, yes, on one hand, we have faith that everything that God does is good. And after Mashiach will come, it says, Isaiah the prophet says, we're going to look back and we're going to thank God for all the pain and suffering. Because then it will make sense to us. Because Mashiach will be something, such a revelation, something so astoundingly good, something so astonishingly good, beyond our conception. Today we don't even have a clue how that's possible. But Mashiach will come, we're going to look back, we're going to say, you know what, this is what it took to get here, it was all worthwhile. Thank you for the, all the suffering. Now it's completely inexplicable. But we have faith that God is good and everything God does is good. But on the other hand, God also created us human and there's a message in that too. He doesn't want us to suppress our humanity, He wants us to yell and shout. We're hurting, we're in pain. God is in pain, Moses is in pain, every Jew that ever lived is in pain. The whole history is in pain because how do we justify all this pain and suffering, all this harshness? We can't make peace with the cries of one baby that's crying, that's in pain, that's suffering. How do you make peace with that? And we shouldn't make peace with that. And we don't make peace with that. We don't shove pain and suffering and say, oh, it's wonderful, God is wonderful, everything is all good. Mazel tov. No. Because God created this human. He wants us to yell and shout. Pain and suffering is unacceptable. It's abnormal. It's an aberration. Something is wrong with the picture. We need Mashiach now. So our mission is to transform the darkness into light. And that hasn't happened yet. No one will delude himself that it has happened yet. Even the most delusional human being on earth will not delude himself. Except maybe the, the, the peaceniks. <laughs> but the most delusional human being hasn't deluded himself that the darkness has been transformed into light. Yet. So you're saying that Hashem is waiting for us to groan like the way we, the Jews groaned in Europe. 
that their prayer went up to him and that he answered them. And that would not the Holocaust have been a source to have the Jews come together and groan to God about their well, similar I, bondage? Like the, the Jews groaned in, uh, in Egypt, it says. It says when the Jews groaned in Egypt, that's when the redemption started. I don't see where the Jews groaning in Europe uh, had any, had, did anything. I'm talking about the Jews groaning in Egypt. Um, the Jews groaning in Egypt, and that was the beginning of the redemption, when the Jews realized we're, we're, we're in exile, and we're in pain and anguish as a result of the exile. And uh, we groan. That's when Mashiach comes, like the, the beautiful story. This Jewish couple gave their child the best education, and from the mother's womb, they were teaching, her, teaching their daughter French, and then the daughter grew up and got married, was about to have a child, and the daughter with the, her mother is in the hospital, and they're waiting for the baby, you know, for the birth, and, um, and she starts yelling out in very eloquent French, doctor, I'm having the baby, you know. And the doctor continues talking to the mother and ignores her. The mother says, my daughter is yelling, why don't you go into to the birthing room and help her? I said, yeah, don't, don't worry. An hour later, she yells out in a beautiful French, doctor, you must come, the, doctor, the baby is coming any minute. The third time she yells out in Yiddish, Oy Geval, doctor, come! <laughs> the doctor starts running, saying, now the baby is coming. <laughs> you know, as, long as, we're, as long as we're talking fancy language and fancy eloquent philosophy, and when a Jew starts groaning, Hashem, help, get me out of this gullus, get me out of this exile, inner exile, and external exile, spiritual exile, and material exile, when a Jew starts crying out in anguish, and the Jewish people are crying in anguish. That's when you know that the baby is coming. That's when you know, that's the labor pains that the baby is about to be born, this new birth, this new revelation, this new transformation, uh, this new, new reality, which is, which is Mashiach. But it hasn't happened yet. That moment, when that moment happens, we'll all know it. You'll read about it in the front pages of, of the newspaper, New York Times. Mashiach will come, we'll all know it. It hasn't happened yet. Temple is not rebuilt. Forty million Jews are not dancing in the streets of Jerusalem. You walk down Park Avenue, unfortunately, we still don't, don't sense godliness. It's not palpable yet. It's not tangible. It's not a reality. So, you know, we're still living in the house of lies and, and deception and darkness. And there's still pain and suffering. And, uh, but the status quo is unbearable and unacceptable. And maybe with everything that's going on, people are waking up that the status quo is unbearable and, and things have to change. We have to, uh... But that's our mission. Our mission is to take the darkness and to transform it. But we had a taste of it. When God created the world, the world was a garden of Eden. The world was a dwelling place to God. This world was God's source of pleasure, of delight. It didn't last long, but it tells us that that's the very core and essence of this world. That's our true nature. It's not, it's not the way it appears to be that the world is dark and coarse and unrefined. The truth is the world is very godly. Its core and essence, its true nature is godly, but it's completely covered up and concealed and hidden. This is part of the lie and the deception and the con. The world presents itself as a very harsh place, a very coarse place. Then you had Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai... As a result of Abraham and seven generations and Moses, he brought God back down to earth. 
God descended into the mountain and brought God back down to earth. So, once again, we had a taste, a brief taste, a brief moment. But Mount Sinai did change things, that at least from Mount Sinai on, we were empowered. We have a program. We were empowered that through the Torah, through studying the Torah, through doing the mitzvot, and through studying Torah and doing mitzvot for the last 3,321 years, we have the ability to transform the world. That's how we have transformed and we are transforming the darkness of the world through doing the mitzvot with our actions, with our deeds, with our physical, with our body, with our egos, our natural souls. We are transforming the material world and transforming the darkness into light. Taking the coarsest and the world, the densest, the most, which is the antithesis of godliness and transforming it into light. Making this world a dwelling place for Hashem. But when will this be permanently achieved and accomplished? This will be when Mashiach will come. Then this world will be permanently become a dwelling place for God forever and ever. There will never be another exile. The world will never revert back into exile. Mashiach will come, will be a permanent transformation. There will be a transformation in human consciousness. The world will be completely transformed. The world will become a good place, an enlightened place, a godly place, a kind place, a gentle place, a genuine place, a selfless place, a beautiful world, a garden of Eden, where people are kind to each other, and people are good to each other, and people are genuine. This will become permanent. This will become the permanent nature and permanent reality of this world. And it's imminent. It's any moment. We're at the cusp. We're at the, at the, we're almost at the critical mass. We're, we're at, the, uh, at the threshold. We're about to enter into this new era. We are the last generation of the old era. There's never been a generation like ours. We are living in unique times. We are the last generation of the old era, and we, are the, we will be the first generation of this transformation. We are the transformational generation. There's never been a generation like ours. It's unique. We're living in very dynamic times, very powerful times. The energy that's out there is so powerful and so special. But it's up to us. We are the agents of change. We are the main actors in this event. We're not the bystanders. You can't be an observant Jew, stand by the side and observe, root for the whole team, even by a box office seat. We're the star, root for the home team. Every one of us has to go into the field and swing the bat by doing an extra mitzvah, by facilitating and hastening, and facilitating that interchange, achieving redemption within, and doing more Torah, and doing more mitzvah, transforming the darkness into light. And by us increasing, intensifying, and deepening our connection to Torah and Mitzvot, that's how we transform the world. We will hasten to facilitate this moment, which is inevitable. It's already happening. Anyone who can open his eyes and see everything that's going on, the rumblings and the collapse of fascism in 1945 and the collapse of communism in 1988 and 1989 and the collapse of Zionism in 1993 and the collapse of capitalism in 2008 and sees the only ism that's remaining standing is Judaism. The one ism, anyone that you see that the, the, the revolution and the transformation and the information age and all the changes that are happening and all the positive changes and the awareness that uh, the world is about to enter into a new era. And, the, and, this, and this will be a, an eter- eternal transformation. The world will change for good and the world will change forever. And it'll be a positive change, a transformational change. There's no need, there's no need for cutthroat. The world doesn't have to be cutthroat. 
We're living in an era today, in the information age, where everyone could cooperate and everyone could, could, uh, could gain. Everyone could uh, profit. It doesn't have to be cutthroat, where one gains and the other one loses. There's been a, a seismic shift. There's been a transformation in, in business. Today, to do business, you don't, have to, you don't have to have the model of haves and have-nots. It's completely unnecessary. Today, the information age, it's so huge that no company could do it alone. It's only by collabor- collaborative efforts. And everyone gains. Information is infinite. And there's enough information to go around. And the wealthier we are and the more easily accessible information is, the wealthier everyone becomes. And there's enough information to go around. The world no longer defines itself by materialism. Materialism is a limited quantity. Gold, so you have haves and have-nots. And the only definition of wealth is if I have. If everyone has what I have, what I have then I'm not wealthy. So in order for me to be considered wealthy, there has to be a have-nots. But that whole model has been thrown out the window. Because today we've evolved into the information age. The person who has information is not richer, wealthier, when the other one is a have-not. On the contrary, the person who has information wants to share his information, wants everyone to share his wealth. And the more information that's out there and the more it's available and accessible, the richer and the deeper, and it's infinite. It just keeps on growing and growing. So the whole model has shifted. The whole world is shifting. Anyone who can open his eyes can see that we're, we're, we're about to enter the Messianic era where the world will be transformed, a global transformation, a transformation of human consciousness, a, a world where everyone could thrive and everyone could, there'll be an abundance of materialism and there'll, be, and there'll be healthy and wholesome and there'll be green energy and positive energy and wholesome energy and the world could be a Garden of Eden, literally a Garden of Eden, physically and spiritually. So it's imminent, but it's up to us to facilitate it, to fast forward it a minute earlier. Because even another night in exile, another moment in exile is a moment too, too long. Why should there be so much pain and suffering, even for another moment? Why should God suffer? Why should Mashiach suffer? Why should Moses suffer? Why should every Jew that ever lived suffer? Why should, why should, why should this continue for another moment? But we can change the whole model. We can transform the darkness into light. And it's up to us. That's the goodness. You know, the good news and badness. You know the story with the rabbi, there was a hole in the synagogue and they, they needed a lot of money to fix the hole. The rabbi gets up to his congregation and says, I have good news and badness. The good news is we have enough money to fix the leak. The bad news is the money is in your pocket. <laughs> it's good news and badness. It's up to us. That's the good news, but it's up to us. So we better roll up our sleeves and get our act together. Every one of us. Don't rely on the rabbi and don't rely on the other one. We, we have to make it happen. Every one of us has to take responsibility, personal responsibility for bringing machines. We can do it, every one of us. Through the simplest good deed, by adding, taking a baby step forward, doing an extra mitzvah, pushing ourselves. Just a baby step forward, giving an extra dollar to charity. Studying Torah an extra minute a day. Putting on tefillin lighting a Shabbat candle, whatever it is, the tiniest mitzvah, just taking one baby step forward. If every Jew in the world had one more mitzvah, Mashiach would be here in a moment. If 70,000 Jews living in the Upper East Side, if every one of them did one thing more Jewish, one more mitzvah, everyone on their own level took one baby step forward, we would transform, revolutionize human consciousness. And the whole entire world would be transformed and changed. And this 
this reality would 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 become would manifest itself, it would become a real tangible reality. It's as simple as that. It's so simple. And it's so doable. And it's really up to us. This is a program to action. It's a program to change. Real change. To change the world for good. Forever. But we once experienced it at Mount Sinai. So we got a taste of it at Mount Sinai, which also whets our appetite. Now that we had a taste of it, and we experienced it once, we all stood at Mount Sinai, all our souls stood at Mount Sinai. So this gives us the encouragement. Mount Sinai actually etched into our being, imprinted in our psychic, the vision of a perfect world. We had a taste of it. We experienced it. So we know that it's possible. That's why all the revolutionaries were Jewish, because we can't accept the status quo. We know that the world has to be better. It could be better. We can't just accept that this is the best things can be. Because it etched into our being a vision of perfection, a vision of the way the world could be. When the darkness is transformed into light, when this world, this material, physical world, becomes a godly place, a dwelling place for God, where God can feel at home, where this physical world becomes a garden of Eden. Could you imagine this physical world, earthy human beings, living in this world, and this world being a garden of Eden? Well, we can't, not only could we imagine it, we experienced it. We tasted it. We saw. We saw that it's real. This is a reality. And therefore, ever since, we have this itch. We have to get back. We know we can do it. We were there. We know it's possible. Adam was there. We know that this is a reality. It's the status quo which seems surreal. But this is a, is a genuine reality. And knowing that it's up to us, this lights a fire into us. Let's do whatever we can to make this happen, to make this reality, to get back to our true nature, to reveal and uncover the world's true core and essence, essential nature, which is a godly nature. And it's really a garden of Eden. And as a result of all the accumulation of all the positive energy and all the mitzvot and all the sacrifice over thousands of years, all of this energy accumulates. Energy that never disappears. And these seeds are finally taking root. And these seeds will bear fruit and will come to fruition. And this world, imminently, will become a garden of Eden. That's why we're seeing all the Technologies, all the advances in technologies, all the world is once again beginning to yield all its secrets, all its scientific secrets, things that a hundred years ago were mind-boggling, and today is just, and and we're just we're just going delving deeper and deeper in the yield. The world is yielding all of it, more and more of its secrets, because the world is spiritually ready to become once again the Garden of Eden. All the secrets of the world. God created the world. He created the world. It was a Garden of Eden. It was perfect. All that hidden potential, which was revealed when God created the world. But then as a result of the sin work, it became hidden. And the world became a very harsh place. Now the world is once again beginning to yield those secrets. Because Mashiach is ready to come. We're at the cusp. We're at the, at the threshold. Any moment. Because it's a consequence of what's happening spiritually. Because again core, the essence of the world is becoming healthier and healthier. The spiritual core and essence of the world, center of the world is becoming healthier and healthier and more vibrant. 
and it's about to burst to the surface. And that's why we're seeing this renaissance of Jewish life like never before. Hundreds of thousands of Jews all over the world with no benefit of any Jewish education due to no fault, no fault of their own have this rediscovered Judaism with a vengeance the passion we have the largest educational project in Jewish history launched by the Rebbe 4,000 Chabad houses all over the world so you see that the core the essence is alive is healthy the spiritual core and essence of the world is so he- vibrant is so healthy that it's ready to burst to the surface and the the Seeds are ready to yield to, and, uh, to come to fruition, full fruition. And this world is ready to become a Garden of Eden once again. Beautiful place. Life could be good. Life doesn't have to be a pack of lies. It doesn't have to be the way life is set up now. You know, with all the heartache that it brings. It could be a genuine place and a good place. And you know it. And, and, and everyone can profit. That's the irony. That old model, everyone could profit. That old model, that in order to succeed, everything has to be a lie, a deception, a con. That model doesn't work anymore. Firstly, with the information age, you're not conning anyone, you're not lying. Everyone sees right through you. So it doesn't work anymore. The lies don't work anymore. People see through the politicians, people see through the media, people see through the big business, and they, they see through the lies and the deception. And it doesn't work anymore. There's enough information people know. People know the truth. And it's not necessary. That model doesn't work anymore. Today, you can, you, today the world is ready to do business in a, in a moral way. Where you can be honest and genuine. And everyone profits. And everyone is happy. So it's any moment. It's just a transformational stage. And it's a very painful stage. You know, when you change the old order into the new order, it's like a twilight zone. It's a very painful moment. Like the birthing pangs. It's the most painful moment. Right before the baby is born, it's the most painful moment. But you know that the baby is about to emerge. So we're living through a very painful moment. But we know that the baby is about to emerge. This world, is the Dira B'Tachtoinu, where the world becomes a dwelling place for Hashem, where godliness is open and godliness is revealed, and it's a Garden of Eden, and it's a truthful world, and it's an honest world, and it's a moral world, and it's an ethical world, and it's a spiritual world, and it's an enlightened world, and a good world, and a kind world, and a gentle world, and a wholesome world. This world is about to emerge. As a result, as a consequence of thousands of years of sacrifice, of Torah, of mitzvah, of sincerity, of genuineness. And we have to... uh, we have to hit the last nail. We have to hit the last. So it's up to us. Maybe it'll be you. Maybe it'll be me. Maybe it'll be you. One of us will be the one to do that last mitzvah that will create that critical mass and make it happen. Can you imagine? What an inspiring thought that one of us in this room or one of the 14 million Jews alive today or one of the 70,000 Jews here on the Upper East Side, maybe it could be one of us that can do that last mitzvah. That with the accumulation of the mitzvot and Torah of 3,200 years, will be the one, will have the merit to be the one to create that critical mass and bring about this awakening, this transformation. What an inspiring thought. If we live with that thought every moment of the day, 
It would encourage us to go that extra mile, push ourselves a little, go beyond our nature and, you know, that extra oomph, that extra push that we need to do that, stretch a little, do that extra mitzvah. When we know what's at stake, there's so much at stake, and we know that it's at hand, victory is at hand. We are at the threshold. When you know you're so close, victory is right here. All you need is that little extra push. So that inspiring thought is enough to give us that extra push, to go that extra mile. Do that extra mitzvah. Push also. Study a little more. Do a little more. Give a little more. And knowing that that, that could do the trick. That could be the mitzvah that will do the trick. Okay. Come, you want to read uh, page 478, second paragraph from the bottom. The glimmer of this revelation which will take place in the future has already been experienced at the time of the giving of the Torah of Sinai. As it is written, you, God, reveal yourself that we may know that God is the Lord. There is nothing else beside him. You actually revealed yourself, indicating that the revelation was in a manner perceptible to physical sight. Not just seeing with the eye of the mind, intellectual seeing, perception, but physically seeing. The naked eye, they were able to see godliness. Continue. So it is written. So it is written, and all the people saw the thunder. They saw what is normally heard. The children of Israel perceived the revelation at Sinai with actual sight. It was like a miracle. They were able to see sounds. Ordinarily, you can't see sounds. Sound waves are spiritual. But at Sinai, they were physically able to see sounds. As our rabbis explained, they looked eastward and heard the divine speech issuing forth, saying, I am Hashem, your, your God. And so, too, turning toward the four points of the compass and above and below, they heard the words coming from every direction. As explained also in Tikkuni Zohar, there was no place from which he did not speak to them. This was so because in the Ten Commandments, his blessed will was revealed. So they, they physically saw. It's like uh, there's, um, there's an illness. They call it synesthesia, where people are able to see sound waves. Yeah, they see colors. Different sound waves make different colors. The, because the soul... The soul has the ability to see and the ability to hear. But the soul, before the ability to see is compartmentalized in the eye and the ability to hear is compartmentalized in the ear, when the soul itself contains this ability, it's like wired into the soul. Therefore, when, before the soul is differentiated, you can, you can see sound waves and you can hear sights. And... So Sinai touched the Jews so deeply, it touched the very core and essence of their soul because they experienced the revelation of God's essence and they were touched by their essence of their soul. Therefore, their soul became all, with their eyes, with their ability to see, with their eyes, they saw, they saw sound waves. And with the ears, they were able to hear what you ordinarily see because both the ability to see and the ability to hear come from the one soul, one undivisible soul. It's only um, later on that these abilities are differentiated. 
can compartmentalize into the eye, into the ear. But at its source, it's all one. It's all part of one soul. But on a conscious level, the soul is very compartmentalized. Sight belongs to the eyes and hearing, hearing to the ears. But because they were so touched at the very core and essence, therefore all the abilities all became interlinked and interconnected and they were able to hear with their eyes, able to see, see with their ears. I mean, they were able to, to, to hear with their eyes and then see, see with their ears. Everything became all, all interconnected. So Sinai, that's when they saw God himself. When they saw God revealed himself. God's essence revealed himself. And it touched the essence of their soul. They experienced something like they've never seen before. They experienced in the physical body. They were physically able to see sounds. All of them they were able to see sounds. And they were able to see God's voice. That was a moment when God's essence became manifest in this world, in the physical world, body and soul. It's not they all became disembodied, they all went into a trance, and they all fell asleep, and they all went to heaven, and they experienced, they had a spiritual experience. No. They physically, in the body, physically had these unbelievable experiences, complete, extraordinary experiences. This eye is able to see, they're able to... to see the sounds, see the voices, see the voice. So they experience such, an, such a revelation of godliness. They physically experienced the revelation of godliness. They saw godliness. They experienced it firsthand. This wasn't just intellectual knowledge, philosophical knowledge, even mystical, abstract, spiritual knowledge, meditation. This was physical. Their physical bodies, they experienced something they've never experienced before as a result of the godly, manifest, godly revelation. God revealed His essence. And that touched the essence of their soul. And their essence of their soul responded. And therefore, their bodies started working in mysterious ways. With their eyes, they were able to uh, see sounds. And with their ears, they were able to hear sights. And He explains, because there's no place empty of God. And why did this happen? He said, this happened as a result of... This was so because... This was so because in the Ten Commandments His blessed will was revealed. Since they, the Ten Commandments, comprise the entire Torah, which represents the inner aspect of His will and wisdom, where there is no concealment of the countenance whatsoever. As we say in our prayers, during the light of your countenance, you gave us a Torah of life. The Torah thus represents the light of his countenance, the inner light of godliness. When this light was revealed through the uttering of the Ten Commandments, the entire world experienced the revelation of godliness. So the Ten Commandments has 620 letters, corresponding to the 613 mitzvot, plus the seven, either the seven Noahide laws, or the seven rabbinic laws. So the, the Ten Commandments contain the entire Torah. And the Torah is a revelation of God's inner will. God created the world. And God desired this world. But this world is God's external will. The Torah is a revelation of God's inner will. Why did God create the world? Because God had a vision. 
And that's his Torah. And everything in this world is just there to implement his vision or to reveal his, his vision. Everything in the world is just a parable to help us understand, to help us understand a different concept in the Torah. So the Torah is really God's inner vision, inner will, inner wisdom, where there's nothing else but God. All that exists is God. There is nothing else. This world is merely a manifestation of God. That's all it is. Why does a person have 248 limbs in his body? You know why? Because there are 248 mitzvot. God created the body in order to fulfill the mitzvot. Why did he create a hand? He should give to charity, because it said there's a mitzvah to give tzedakah. Why did God create Wall Street? Why did God create the financial market? Because it says in the Torah, you should give tzedakah. So he created the marketplace, he created money. Why did he create gold? To build the temple, to use it in the temple. Everything in the world is merely a manifestation. Why did God create the negativity? So we should reject it. Why did God create evil? So we should destroy it. Or we should reject evil. Everything in the world is merely here in order to implement God's will. There is nothing else. Why does a person have 365 veins in his body? Because there are 365 prohibitions in the Torah. So everything in the world is merely just a, a reflection, an expression of the Torah. There is nothing else. Really, all there is, from God's innermost perspective, all there is is God, all there is is His Torah and His vision. There is nothing else. All of reality is just here to express the Torah. It has no other reality. There's, no, there's nothing else. There's no independent reality. It doesn't have any other meaning. Its whole meaning is it's here to highlight another aspect of the Torah. This is kosher and this is not kosher. This is pure and this is impure. This is guilty or not guilty. Obligated, not obligated. Everything in the world is just here to express that, that reality. So from God's innermost perspective, the world has no reality. There is nothing else but God. So before the giving of the Torah, the world is a reality. And at most, you can become spiritual, you can become religious, and you can try to sense that there's more than this world or there's something else besides that meets the eye there's something deeper going on but with the revelation of Sinai the revelation of the Torah when God revealed the Ten Commandments which incorporates the entire Torah mitzvah his innermost will his innermost wisdom what the Jewish people felt and experienced was that there's no other reality but God it's not that the world exists now we have to figure out a way a system of living all ways of life starts out with the premise the world exists. The question is, how are you going to organize life? So you have different systems, different political systems, different systems, different ways of life. How are you going to organize life in the most coherent way, the best way possible? The Torah is a revolution. Mount Sinai is a revelation. Because it tells us that first you start out with the Torah. And as a result, life manifests itself. As a result of the Torah. The whole world is just here in order to reveal and to implement God's vision and God's plan. Blueprint. Torah is the blueprint for reality. Nothing exists without the Torah. God looked into the Torah and then He created the world. So it revolutionizes our whole perspective in the world. Because... Once you experience that there's no other reality than God, nothing in the world could contradict the Torah. How could anything in this world, anything in life, be a, an obstacle to living a Jewish life? And the Torah says, live in a certain way. 
It could be nothing in this world. It could be an obstacle. And if you think it's an obstacle, it's, it's, it's an illusion. How could anything in this world be an obstacle and go against the code of Jewish law? It's impossible. It's just an illusion. Because if everything in this world is being created and only in order to implement the Torah, so there's no other reality. It's because God had a blueprint and He had a vision. That's why He created everything in this world. There's no other reason. There's no other, there's no other point. That is the entire point. That's the whole reason behind His existence. So therefore you look at the world differently. From Mount Sinai, it's become hardwired into the Jewish psyche. We look at the world with different eyes, with different lenses. We, when we wear the Torah glasses, we look at the world entirely differently. It's not that the world has a reality and then, okay, how are we going to figure out the, how to live, rules, laws, moral, morality, ethics. It's much deeper than that. It's not just Torah, it's not just rules and laws and morality and ethics and spirituality and religion. Torah is that there's no other reality but God. All there is is God, all there is is godliness. Everything in this world was only created. It's like the material is just the manifest of the spiritual. That's all it is. Why does the eye, why does the eye so complex? Because it's, it's a materialization of the soul's ability to see. So the soul materializes and, and expresses itself, and then you have the body which perfectly matches the soul's ability to see. Every organ in the body perfectly matches the soul's ability and energy that matches that organ. So everything in the material is just a manifestation, a materialization, a manifestation of the spiritual. So really there is nothing else but godliness. And that revolutionizes your whole perspective on life and your whole perspective on the world. Suddenly you see the world differently. It's a godly world. It's a, it's, it's a, it's a holy world. And it's up to us to reveal the godliness in the world through Torah. By doing Torah and doing mitzvah, you reveal the truth that there is nothing else but God and everything in the world is just here just to implement and to realize this godly vision. The material is just the tip of the tip of the iceberg and it's just here as a manifestation of the spiritual of the godly. And therefore nothing in this world could be in contradiction to living a Jewish life, 100%. And if you think it's a contradiction, it's a pure illusion. It can't be. It's impossible. How could anything in this world contradict Godliness? Which is why the Torah says when God spoke, He said God's voice, there was no echo. And the Rebbe asked, what do you, I mean, God is not a magician. God doesn't just do miracles just for the sake of doing miracles. Why shouldn't there be an echo? And there's a voice. There should be an echo. Why was God's voice, why was there no echo? What's, and what's the meaning behind it? And who cares if there was an echo? There wasn't an echo. Why is it relevant to us? The Torah is not a storybook. Why is the Torah telling us that there was no echo? It's trying to teach us something. Something that's relevant to our personal lives. And the Rebbe explains that the message is an echo comes when the voice bounces off. When there's an obstruction. When you have good acoustics, it, doesn't, it absorbs the voice, so there's no echo. When the voice is not absorbed... The voice bounces off, so you have an echo. So what is the idea there was no echo? Meaning that God's voice was absorbed. The entire world absorbed God's voice. In other words, there was no resistance to God's voice. An echo comes from resistance. The Torah is telling us that God's voice, the revelation of Sinai, and God revealed His innermost will, His innermost wisdom, the Torah, God was revealing that there is no resistance. There could be no resistance. The entire world absorbed the voice of the Torah. Because the entire world was only created through the Torah. And by the Torah. And for the Torah. There is nothing else. 
So how could the world be in resistance to the Torah? If the world appears to be in resistance to the Torah, it's an illusion. It's impossible. There is nothing stopping a Jew from living a Torah life 100%. And if he thinks he does, and he thinks he's forced to live in a way that's not, not the way the Torah says, it's an illusion. It's impossible. It's impossible. The whole world was created. Anything that exists, entire existence, was only created as an implement, as a manifestation of God's innermost will and wisdom. There is nothing else. From God's point of view, from God's innermost point of view, all there is is Torah. There is nothing else. Everything in the world is just a parable to bring out a point in Torah. To express a point, a truth of the Torah. Even evil. To reject evil. The whole purpose is so that we should reject it. We should overcome. Everything is here to, to implement God's vision of reality. There's nothing else. So this, this blew the Jewish people away. This is mind-boggling. When they experienced it firsthand. This is not religion. This is not what they were used to. Till then, religion and mysticism tells you, no, you start out, the world is the world, and then you work your way up to some other reality, higher dimensions, higher levels of consciousness, different realities, deeper realities. But that's not what the Torah is. The Torah is teaching us there's nothing that physically, the physical world, everything in the physical world is just a manifestation of the spirit. That there is no other reality but God. Everything in the physical world is just created in order to fulfill a certain aspect of the Torah. So when the Jewish people experienced it firsthand, it just, it just blew them away. And that's why he says, you want to read? Therefore, they, the Jews who stood at Sinai, were nullified out of existence, as our rabbis have said, at every divine utterance, their souls were fight in their bodies. So it wasn't, it wasn't the question of death, because there was no death. At Mount Sinai, death came to an end. This was the mending of the sin of the Etzadat. The, uh, the angel of death was, was put out of commission. Had the Jews not sinned with the golden calf, there would no longer be any death. But it was, they expired of ecstasy. They couldn't, they couldn't take it. They couldn't handle it. It was such an overwhelming revelation. It was such an overwhelming experience. The physically and firsthand experience godliness. The truth that there's no other reality but God. And that everything in the world is just here merely a manifestation of the spiritual, of the godly. And just an implement and a parable to bring out another aspect of Torah, of God's innermost will and wisdom. It just blew them away when they, because they physically felt it. They physically experienced it. And therefore, it was too much for them, and um, their souls took flight from their body.